Good morning, church. Oh, man, look at this. Talk about unprepared. Hey, let's go and run the video. That should be next. Let's do that. I get it. I'll get it. I get it. The video's running. I got it. I got it. It's cool. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. You're talking about the... Oops-a-daisy. Hey, welcome to our first service, everybody. It's so exciting. We never used these computers before. <laughs> Zoinks indeed. Prophetic shirt. Daggummit. No, no sound, huh? Well, that won't help us, sadly. We probably should have tested that before the service. Do you hear it playing up there, Emma, like through the computer? Do you hear it playing like through the computer? Okay, can you change it back to the other setting? Let's see if that fixes it. It's a really cool video. There we go. Challenge and motivate the people to rebuild the temple and look for the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, long ago, Jeremiah the prophet had said that Israel's exile would last for 70 years, and that afterwards God would restore his presence to a new temple and bring his kingdom and the rule of the Messiah over all nations. The dates at the beginning of this book tell us that those 70 years are almost up. But life back in the land was hard, and it seemed like none of these promises were going to come true. Why? And the book of Zechariah offers an explanation. It has a fairly clear design. There's an introduction which sets the tone for a large collection of Zechariah's dream visions. And that's concluded by chapters 7 and 8. And then this is followed by two more large collections of poetry and prophecy. Let's just dive in and see how the book works. It begins with Zechariah's challenge to his generation to turn back to God and not be like their ancestors who rebelled and refused to listen to the earlier prophets, which landed them in exile. And so now the returned exiles respond positively to Zechariah. They repent and humble themselves before God, or so it seems. The next large section is a collection of eight nighttime visions that Zechariah experienced. And just to prepare you, these are full of very bizarre, strange images, a lot like your dreams. The idea that God communicates to people through symbolic dreams, it's very old. It goes back to the book of Genesis. The dreams of Jacob or Joseph or Pharaoh, these gave meaning to current events at the time, but they also gave a window into the future. And so Zechariah has his own dreams now, and they've been arranged in this really cool symmetrical design. The first and the last visions are about four horsemen each. They're like rangers patrolling the world on God's behalf, and it's a representation of God's attentive watch over the nations. Their report is that the world is at peace. And in Zechariah's day, this refers to how God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon and bring peace. And so the question now arises, the 70 years of Israel's exile are almost up. Is now the time for the Messianic kingdom in Jerusalem? 
And God responds by saying that he's determined to fulfill those promises, but he leaves the question of timing unanswered. The second and seventh visions are paired because they're both reflections on Israel's past sin that led up to the exile. So the second vision is about these horns that symbolize the nations that attacked and then scattered Israel, Assyria and Babylon. But then these horns or empires are themselves scattered by a group of blacksmiths, an image for Persia. The seventh dream is about a woman in a basket, and we're told that she's a symbol of the centuries of Israel's covenant rebellion. And then this woman is carried off to Babylon by other women who carry the basket flying with stork wings. This is so strange. The third and sixth visions are paired as they're both about the rebuilding of a new Jerusalem. So a man is measuring the city. It's an image of God's promise that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and become a beacon to the nations who will join God's people in worship. And then the sixth dream is about a scroll that flies around the new Jerusalem, punishing thieves and liars. The idea being that the new Jerusalem is a place that's purified from sin by the scriptures. The fourth and fifth visions are at the center of this collection, and they're about the two key leaders among the returned exiles. So Joshua, the high priest, and then Zerubbabel, the royal descendant of David. So Joshua had been symbolically wearing Israel's sin in the form of these dirty clothes. But then those are taken off, and he's given new clothes and a new turban, a symbol of God's grace and forgiveness. And then an angel tells Joshua that if he remains faithful to God, he will lead his people, and Joshua will become a symbol of the future messianic king. The other vision is about two olive trees that supply oil to this elaborate gold lamp, which itself is a symbol of God's watchful eye over his people. And these two trees symbolize the two anointed leaders, Joshua and then Zerubbabel, who's leading the temple rebuilding effort. And God says that success will not come to this new temple if it's the result only of political maneuvering. Rather, these two leaders must be dependent upon the work of God's spirit. The visions come to a close with a bonus vision from the prophet, and it picks up the themes of the central fourth and fifth visions. It's Joshua, the high priest again, and he's given a crown and presented as a symbol of the future Messiah who will also be a priest over God's kingdom. And then Zechariah closes it all out saying that all of these visions will be fulfilled only if the current generation is faithful to God and obeys the terms of the covenant. And so altogether, these three visions emphasize how the coming of the messianic kingdom is conditional upon this generation being faithful to God, which leads to the conclusion of the dream. It's another challenge from Zechariah, and a group of Israelites come, and they've been mourning over the former temple's destruction for nearly 70 years. And they ask him, is it time to stop grieving? I mean, is God's kingdom going to come very soon? And Zechariah again reminds them of how their ancestors rejected God's call through the prophets, which led to the exile. And so he challenges them too. He says, this generation will see the messianic kingdom only if they pursue justice and peace and remain faithful to the covenant. So in other words, Zechariah reverses their question. He asks, are you going to become the kind of people who are ready to receive and participate in God's coming kingdom. And that question is left just hanging there. The people don't answer, and the book just moves on. And so we come to the final sections that are very different from chapters 1 to 8. Each section is a kaleidoscopic collage of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. So the first one, chapters 9 to 11, describes the coming of the humble messianic king who's riding a donkey into the new Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom over the nations. But then, all of a sudden, this king, he's symbolized as a shepherd over the flock of Israel, and then he's rejected. 
first by his own people, but then also by their leaders, who are also symbolized as shepherds. And so God hands Israel over to these corrupt shepherds, and it raises the question, will Israel's rejection of their king last forever? In the final section, chapters 12 to 14, say no. It's another mosaic of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. And they depict the new Jerusalem as a place where God's justice will finally confront and defeat evil among the nations. It's very similar to the same themes in prophet Joel or Ezekiel. But then God also will confront the rebellion within the hearts of his own people. He's going to pour out his spirit on them, he says, so that they can repent and grieve over the fact that they have rebelled and rejected their messianic shepherd. The final chapter concludes with the new Jerusalem as the gathering point for all of the nations. And then this city becomes a new garden of Eden and there's a river of living water flowing out of the temple bringing healing to all of creation and that's how the book ends. And so Zechariah just leaves you to ponder the connection between chapters 1 through 8 and 9 to 14. And the point seems to be that this future messianic kingdom of the book's second half will only come when God's people are faithful to the covenant, the point of the first half. Reading the book of Zechariah is a wild ride. These visions and poems are full of startling imagery, and they do not follow a linear flow of thought. And that's part of the point. It's like history and our lives. It doesn't always fit into neat, orderly patterns. But the prophets offer us glimpses of God's hand at work, guiding history towards his own purposes. And so ultimately, Zechariah invites us to look above the chaos and hope for the coming of God's kingdom, which should motivate faithfulness in the present. And that's what the book of Zechariah is all about. All right. Well, let's pray. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Oh, we're going to pray, but uh, we don't always air those videos. We've showed several of them, <clears throat> and they are wonderful. The work they've put into it is extraordinary. I can't speak highly enough about how valuable that is when you're trying to figure out which way is up. But this one I thought was very apt because Zechariah, I'll be 100% uh, honest, is very, very confusing. He actually says in there at one point, like, it's just very bizarre. <laughs> like, the imagery is bizarre. I I'll tell you right now that what we'll preach on today is really clear cut. We're going to do six verses. It's going to be right on point. You're going to say, what the heck? It seemed pretty straightforward. It, after this, the wheels of clear-cutness are going to come off. And that's okay. I, I love the way the video said it, which is why I watched it, which is not everything in our lives and the way we do things is going to be really easy to understand and compartmentalize. And there are things that are going to be tough. There are things we're not going to be able to even explain in our world. There are things in this book that we will not be able to explain. We will not be able to say with absolute surety, that's what this means and that's how it applies to us. That's okay. We're still going to read it. We're going to talk about what we don't understand. We're going to agree together that's confusing. Uh, this glorifies God because everything that we do when it involves the Word is all about Him anyway. So um, with that, uh, let's go ahead and read the passage for today and then um, we'll pray and start talking about it. Have you got your Bible? It's uh, Zechariah. Or you could just read it on the screen if you don't. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the farmer prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your father 
Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us from our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, it's, uh, it's both exciting and uh, terrifying, I think, to, to preach through a book that isn't necessarily easy to understand. It's tough sometimes to, for me, personally, to say, I just don't know what this means. I don't know that anybody knows what this means. Uh, Lord, help us to lean on you 100% at times like this when we feel confused or, or, or maybe just filled with doubt or uh, people are asking us questions that we can't answer and not to shy away from those, but to say, let's look at it together. Let's find some resources. Let's, let's move through this as a, as a body of believers, Lord. It's a wonderful thing that we've got here, a gift uh, operating as you've designed that, that iron sharpening iron and and gathering as saints to study your word, to glorify you, to lift you high, uh, to worship you. And when we do what we do today, this is not just to edify us, Lord, as it does, of course, but it's also to glorify you. Um, and, and as we study and we read through this book, and we're challenged maybe by some of the passages specifically, Lord, uh, just stir in us a heart that desires to know more about you. And as we know more about you, glorify you in that knowledge. It's in your sense that I pray. Amen. All right, so moving right along, new book, who dis? It was very quick through Haggai, I mean, two, two weeks and we're on. Um, I will say the minor prophets are very focused in their writing. This is generally the case. Zechariah isn't, foc- isn't as focused or so it may seem. He actually said that in the video, which is ironic, because I, I didn't even catch it until I watched it there. But it seems a lot of times like, oh, this book is intentionally confusing. This book's intentionally symbolic, you name it. But there is a central focus throughout the whole book in its returning to God. In the video summary we just watched, you'll notice this theme about there's a future coming. There's a Messiah coming. There's a new kingdom coming. That kingdom will involve us being with God forever. We want to be with God now. We want to return to Him now as soon as possible, immediately. Learn from the mistakes of our fathers and our ancestors and be better followers of God. And we're only going to do that with, you guessed it, God's help. So if the time pet, timing is familiar, it should be. This is uh, like many of these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, the ones we've been studying, they're all taking place post-exile in Babylon. So they're back. They're back in Israel and they should be busy. But in, this, in the, the kind of the, the, the state of the union, as it were, at this time is they're in the midst of doubt. If you remember back when we did uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, there was a lot of people that were opposing them, uh, writing letters, lying about things, and the kings were getting involved, like, maybe you should stop, you shouldn't do that, that's not allowed. And they've lost their focus and their faith is waning. They're tired. They're tired of people throwing things and attacking them when they're working on the walls and the buildings. They're tired of having their stuff stolen, perhaps. They're tired of feeling like they're doing this all by themselves and nobody's supporting them. We've come back here to do something amazing and it's difficult for us, and we're just tired. If there's anything that I can relate to, sometimes it's just hard. Doing this every week, coming to church sometimes feels hard. It's just difficult. I've got to get up. I've got to go through the motions. It's hard. It's difficult. And after we succumb to that difficulty and we try to take easier ways out and things like that, which is exactly where they're at here, we find ourselves in a strange place where we kind of know what we, we know what we should do. And quite frankly, we know what we want to do. But we just can't seem to find the strength to do that. Zechariah, though, is led to act. 
It's interesting here, I wanted to start with this, but his lineage is cited at the beginning, and the names of, his, of him, his dad, and his granddad are the Lord remembers, the Lord blesses, and in time. Um, I think that is tremendous. It's just absolutely tremendous. The Lord, is, the Lord remembers, he does not forget, he hasn't forgotten his people or know what he's asked of them. The Lord blesses, so the good and the bad and, and the ugly that are coming to them, that's the Lord engaged still today. He remembers, he's engaged, but in time. Not when you want it, not when we want it, not when they wanted it, not at the pace they thought was best, in God's time. If there's anything maybe at the end of this whole sermon that I'd like for you to think about throughout this week and month, is the Lord remembers, the Lord blesses, and he does that in time. Things aren't going your way. Okay, the Lord hasn't forgotten you. The Lord will bless you, and it will be in time. In this case, what we're talking about, the time is now. <laughs> the first thing Zechariah does is a history lesson. <clears throat> God was very angry with your fathers. Now, when we see fathers here, it doesn't necessarily just mean dads. Like, you know, your moms were fine, your grandparents were great, but your dads really were. This is basically forefathers, if you will. So your ancestors... He was very angry. The translation there could also be his anger burned against. So we're getting into kind of wrath territory here. God was angered by their choices, angered by what they did or did not do to where his wrath was kindled. That's why we talked about, uh, you saw in the video, this notion of God put them into exile, right? You want to be in rebellion against me? We'll sort it out right. Away you go. I'll, I'll, I'll leverage some groups of people that absolutely would love to put you under lock and key, and I'm going to let them do it so that you guys understand I'm important. I'm what matters. I deserve the glory, not you. A stern reminder that God hates sin. When God tells us to do something, when it's a command from the Lord, we should heed that. It doesn't mean that we're going to nail it every time, but if we lean away from it, we begin to construct our own desires and our own views and a, a false understanding of the truth of God based on sin that we like, get ready to have anger burning against us. We don't desire that. That's exactly where they were. We talk about building false idols and, and things like that. That was very, very commonplace in their time period. People would just start worshiping other gods. Fold it in. No problem. No worries. Told you not to do that. Doesn't matter. We dress like them. We have uh, many wives. I have several concubines. All the things that I want to do because I see other people doing it. Let's just figure out how to go talk to some priests, grease some palms. We'll get that folded into the law. We'll have a couple extra things that allow me to do that. This makes God very, very angry. But hope is not lost. Return to me, and I will return to you. Boy, I tell you, there's all this debate, and you'll hear us say both, well, you know, can I even return to God until he returns to me? If you took the word and and changed it to as, which we could debate, this sentence is more interesting. Return to me as I return to you. Now we don't really know if I ever acted independently. Should I choose to? I do. I do make a choice. But this idea of me self-repenting, Getting clean without God before I come to God, that's not going to be biblical. It may seem like it at first blush, but the more we dig into this, the more we see that God is doing all of this. Yet we still, and I would 100% agree, have a choice to make. When he's talking to them, as we saw in the video, there's a lot of ifs. If you return, if you return, and we could throw our hands in here and say, well, I can't return until God tells me to return, or God invites me back, or God re renews my heart. What Zechariah is telling them is God has given you the tools you need. They have the law. They know God's presence is there. 
They have seen through history His hand has never left them. It is a promise from God at their time that He is here. Yes, your ancestors made grave mistakes, horrible mistakes, that cost the, 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 the remnant a lot of suffering in this world. But here we are. God is merciful even now and waits patiently. God could give up on them and incinerate them and start building a new remnant. Why doesn't he do that? Because he has a covenant with them. God made promises. And when God makes promises, he keeps them. All Zechariah is trying to do is remind them. God's keeping his promises are you. God's being faithful are you. God's telling the truth are you. Why? Because God is special and you are not. And that's pretty condescending maybe. I'm not here to try to tear anybody down, but if you have elevated yourself or you're trying to figure out who's better, you or God, it's God, knock that off. Now we'll all say, oh, I would never dare say that. But then we spend a lot of time doing this in our lives. Zechariah reminds them, there have been other prophets. We've been reading through a bunch of them here, studying together. But that's just a few. There's a bunch of other ones. God has always been engaged with his remnant. He's constantly been sending them reminders with, with word and then deed, as they don't heed, as it were. That's kind of rhymish. It wasn't intended. But the choice given here is the same choice their fathers had. You know, we, we joke maybe with this idea about turn or burn. Well, that's kind of what God's saying. You know the truth. I'm with you. What do you want to do? Well, we want to sin. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't really want to sin, but I, I don't really want to do what you're asking me to do. Right, this fence-riding idea. We have a lot of that in our world today. We have a lot of it then, too. This last bullet, though, is what the Bible tells us. Return to God or stand in opposition to Him. There is no neutral. There's no Switzerland when it comes to salvation. There isn't like heaven for the saved, hell for the unsaved, and then Switzerland for those that just didn't engage. We were, we were neutral. And it's sort of like, a you know, there's a lot of oatmeal and white bread and nothing really that great, but not too bad. It's not hot and fiery, but it's not the river of life. That does not exist. When you do not do what God has asked of you, you are standing in opposition to God. That's not a place we want to be. You might think, well, I can, I can stand there and then I'll work it out later. Sure, this is what we've seen history doing for a long time. What Zechariah is pleading with them, and thus through the word pleading with us is, stop doing that right now. Right now. The, as we go through this book, there, there is this feeling of it's like God wants to bring the Messiah right now, but you are making this impossible. Now that may seem like, wait a minute, you know, if you say God's in control, then he's sovereign. What's going on? God can sovereignly decide to do whatever God wants to do. God gets to make the dependencies on God's work that he's constructed since the beginning of eternity. If he says, I'm not going to do this until that, then that must be done before this will happen. What Zechariah is prophesying to them is, the Messiah will not return as ordered by the Father until these things occur. You need to be a group of people worthy of the Messiah as God has described it. But don't panic. God will make you that people. You have to do nothing but be faithful. Do the, the bare minimum as God changed your heart. Don't stand in rebellion to him. When we get into this Switzerland mindset, it's so easy to think, well, I'm not really opposed to God. That's you fooling yourself. You are opposed to God. You are opposed to God. 
that there is no time. Zechariah reminds them, where are these prophets? Remember all the old prophets? Where are they now? Where are your dads? Where are they? Where are all your ancestors? They're all dead. They're all gone. No one's living forever. They missed their opportunity to try to become these people, to make better choices, to do what needed to be done, to heed the word of God. They didn't do it. <clears throat> so your chance is now. You could do it right now. God tarries so that we may never do so. Church, let us not wait any longer. The time is short. We have no promise of tomorrow. There's a bunch of work to be done. And if we are burning with a, a desire to do it, then let's go do it. If we're not burning with a desire to do the good work, to, to spread the good news, then let's pray for that to be ignited in us. That's what Zechariah is hoping for them. All these words that are coming from God are desire to stir in them a desire to be better than their ancestors who dropped the ball, who went into exile because of their actions. The goal is them to say, I don't want to be that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go away for another 70 years, lose a whole generation. Remember the beauty that we had here and watch it all get destroyed yet again? I don't want that. Of course you don't want that. Well, as you move through this, the goal, of course, is to say, I guess that would be okay as long as I'm close to God. All designed to help them focus on what's important. And he's reminded, this isn't, a, this isn't bad timing, you know. This isn't a luck issue. This, this wasn't, well, we were doing good, but just, you know, that, that mountain came down and ruined the village and we had to go. It was God moving to rebuke them for their unbelief. God claims that. All the things you did, we talked about this in our group today when Haggai was, was prophesying. Hey, remember when you like put 20 bucks in and you only got 10 out and you put 40 pounds in and only 20 appeared? Yeah, that was rough because of the weather. Like, no, it was me, God. I did that. I thwarted you. Because what you were doing had nothing to do with honoring and glorifying me. And I've had enough. And if, until you understand who I am, until you desire me more than the land, than the food, than the crops and cattle and whatever else, then I'm going to keep getting those things out of your way until you're left with nothing but me. And guess what happens when that happens? They still stand in opposition <laughs> because they don't get it. God's desire is not to punish them. It's not to turn screws on believers, to toughen us up through abuse or something like that. It's not what he's doing. It's never what he's been about. But as Zechariah is going through this, he's telling them, don't press your luck. Don't lean on, on, on fables and fairy tales about the past and about it's not your fault because of bad luck. And God must have missed that one. I always joke about God's not up there shuffling papers. That's what he's saying. God's not like, what happened? The crops are, wait a minute, there should have been rain. Who did the rain? Oh, come on, guys. Oh, hold on a minute. Let me see if I can get some. That's not God at all. But that's the image we always have, all right? Because that's how we live our life. We're frenetic. We can't figure out which way is up. We forget things. We're late for things. We overlook things. We disappoint people. We, we fail at keeping promises. God does not. So after all this, what do they do? They repent, of course. I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, right? Like, there's this cycle when we study the Old Testament of like, you know, hey, we are no good. God, save us, please. And like, okay. And you welcome home like, yay, God. And then little by little, like, eh, we're pretty good now. Now we're doing better. Hey, let's do something great. Hey, let's build something great. Oh, no, you don't. Boom. Oh, no, God. And there's a slow decline and something bad happens. And we, we repent again. That cycle of joy in the Lord followed by sin overtaking 
followed by repentance, enjoying the Lord, feels familiar, sounds familiar. That's my life still today. All of this is designed to show us we are not that different than our Jewish forefathers. We struggle to put God in the right place. When we do finally have this moment of, 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 of divine clarity, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're convinced now He's here and He's present in my life, and yay for God, then slowly but surely sin creeps back in. Even in these really high moments, we start saying things like, well, I'm, I'm very pious. I'm exceptionally saved right now. Good for me. I wish others could feel this. And all of a sudden, here we go again, right there. Let's go out and beat some people over the head because they're not feeling the joy of the Lord that I am. But their repentance here, I said, is wonderful and interesting. Listen how they say, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. And this is coming to grips with a few things, this confession. God is sovereign. God is good. And God wants good for us. We are none of those. We are not sovereign. We're not good. And we don't even want good for us. Because if we did, we'd be clinging to God. So God has, as, as He has purposed, as He has decided, as He has set out to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so He has dealt with us. And whatever has happened and will happen is, is fine. It is what it is, as it were. God is God. And whatever comes, we've got to know that God is faithful and he's going to bless us, and it's going to be in his time, and maybe we don't get it, but he is dealing with us as he sees fit. And if God is who he says he is, and we believe that, then that has to be okay. There's a sense of understanding that God's will should be done, period. And I'll tell you, as someone that struggles with this a lot, there's a tremendous amount of peace that comes from knowing that my contribution to my salvation is the sin that required it, and everything beyond that is by the grace of God. That's it. There's no intellectual capacity required to be saved. There's no specific word or deed that is required to be saved. It's all the work of the Lord. We have things that we do that are great traditions, things we're called to do by the word post-salvation to indicate it to the world around us, but it isn't a requirement to be saved. There's no physical thing required to do that. God has said this is how it's going to be, when you're on board with that, things change. This looks terrible, I guess. It's not that I don't care. It's just that I know that God is sovereign, and he wants good for me. And even though it feels painful and it feels taxing, and I know that the, the sinful condition of the world means there's going to be general suffering that we all endure because of the nature of this place. But it doesn't change who God is. These opportunities give us a way to, to be a light and salt event that's un, unlike anything in the world. So the final four. Return to him whose wrath is righteous, whose faithfulness is unparalleled, whose kindness is loving, and whose sacrifice is perfect. So we talk about wrath that's righteous. It might be easier to think about unrighteous wrath. We're reminded here that our fathers, our ancestors, deserved it. Right, he's talking to them, but I'll tell you the same thing. Right? You, you, you get what you get, and you don't get upset. God said, you didn't do, that's what's going to happen. Right? When we talk about God's wrath being righteous, it's in stern contrast to just unbridled anger. My wrath is generally unrighteous. 
I'm just mad. I'm not getting the thing I want. I'm not necessarily thinking about what's best for me or all those around me. I'm not necessarily thinking about what glorifies God the most. I'm just mad. I'm very angry. Emotions are taking over, and I'm going to submit to my own emotions and feelings. And wrath will be poured out, but it won't be righteous. It will drive wedges between people. I'll have to apologize, but maybe they'll never accept the apology. Things, you can't go home again. Things are very difficult to repair sometimes. That is not God's wrath. Their lack of faith and trust deserved wrath. What God did in an effort to show the Israelites who He was and remind them of who He was, was righteously done. It glorified Him to do so. And we see, that's a debatable topic, right? But when we see things like it pleased God to crush His Son, that should give us a, a, a there's a dichotomy, a difficulty to understand, like, why would it please God to crush Him? Because it glorifies God to destroy sin. That's why. God hates sin. He's doing all He can at this time to ready them to understand how that works, that you can't do it alone. You're going to need me. You can't square up with God and then wander away and be okay. You've got to stay with God. Stay in the midst of Him. The, 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 the wrath was instructive and not just punitive. This wasn't designed like you've been now, you, you did the sin, boom. I don't care if you do it again. Uh, I'll punish you again. God's desire was never to say, quiet, let's just see what they do. I'll learn, they'll learn by me turning the screws on them. I'll just wrath them right into really loving me. He sent prophets. He's, he provided for them. He made it very clear what's going on in the world that he's involved with. I am doing all of this for your good. Please stop this. I don't want to do it. But I will because I must. I can't change. God cannot change who he is. He must deal with sin. The wages of sin are death. But yet we see God providing and providing a way to repent and come home, be right, return to him. God never gave up, but he must be righteous. He can't concede and just be like, well, you know, y'all don't learn. Just come on in. I'm done with it. You can sin a little bit in the temple, but just keep it down. That cannot happen. God has said it cannot happen, thus it cannot happen. His wrath is righteous. But his faithfulness is unparalleled. Look at all these prophets. I mean, we've studied eight or ten of them here in, in, through, through sermon, and they're all over. It's unbelievable. Every time we study the Old Testament, I'm amazed at God's faithfulness. We read these books, and if they sound repetitive, they're supposed to. It's always the same. Guys, I love you. Please stop doing this. You know better. Your, your ancestors, they screwed it up, and look what it got them. I can't abide by that. It cannot be allowed. I, as a loving God that cares for you but hates sin, is pure and righteous and perfect, I cannot dwell with you if you keep that up. I'm telling you, knock it off. Oh, well, we really like it. Like, all right. I mean, if that's what you want, then that's what we'll do. We'll do it again. We'll do it again. For those of us that have uh, children, this may sound a little familiar. Like, why did you do it? I don't know. I don't know. Seems like, a, I told you not to do it. Yeah, I know, but I, I just really wanted to do it. We're just like, what? what? Like, this has to be God all the time. Except he's sovereign and knows it, which would be even more frustrating. If I did, every time I've talked to him about something, I like, don't do that, knowing she's going to do it, 
my approach would probably be a little bit different with like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to smack you now because of what I know you're going to do after I told you not, you're not I'm going to tell you not to do it, then you're going to do it, so here it comes down. Now she's a good kid, doesn't bother with that. But like, I don't, I don't know why God puts up with us like he does, but here it is. His desire to protect and cover his remnant is stunning. It blows my mind. To this day, when I look at the state of things and I think of God still sovereign, still waiting, still giving us an opportunity to share the good news, still getting the blessing of seeing people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, when he could just be done with it and erase it all and start over like he promised to do, I'm stunned. We are here not because of luck or fortune, but because God is faithful. When I say his faithfulness is unparalleled, I mean it. I've met some stalwart people. I've met some great people on this earth that were exceedingly faithful, but they don't hold a candle to God. I don't even know what was going on in their private lives. There might be other people that think that they're lower than dirt because they had different run-ins than I did. And some people feel that way about God, but that's because they don't know God. They've been misled and falsely taught that God's not faithful and that he's up there as some sort of arbiter uh, uh, that's that's, uh, completely... uh, malevolent, doesn't care about humanity at all, and just, you know, he constructed the earth and set us on it like an like a ant farm or a science experiment. This is not true. God cares for us. As we study this, we see over and over and over again a story of redemption that is incredible. His faithfulness is unparalleled. Return to him whose kindness is loving. Have you ever been kind to someone that struggled to do that, to be kind to him? If you've ever been in a, any kind of leadership or had a job where you have to deal with customers or students or whatever that you can't stand, that what you really want to do is wring their neck or take them out to the back and just let them have it, like, let's settle it right now. Obviously, you want to fight. We're not allowed to do that in here, but let's work that out. But you can't. So you say, hey, hope you have a good day. Hey, uh, it's good to see you. Hey, how's it going? I don't care, but I'm going to do this because I'm trying to be cordial. This is not a problem for God. We use the term loving kindness, and I love the word. It's very cool. And I've separated it here with intention because I think when we think of kindness, we think of benefit. To be kind to somebody is to accept them. Uh, to Whatever they kind of want to do, it's kind to say, well, that's fine because, you know, it's your business and your life. But if it was loving... And we could use an example today about maybe somebody that's an alcoholic. And they really, really want to drink. We could argue that, well, it's kind if they really want something and to get, them, get that for them. But other people might say, well, it's not kind because it's killing them. They've got a problem. They have a disease. They need help. And that's what the kindness would be. But it's kind of a lazy kindness to just say, well, here's $20 and I'll pray for you that you make a good choice with it. Kind of knowing they may not. But I, can, I could cross that. That's not how God's kindness works. When I say his kindness is loving, it's because even in the midst of what we might perceive as suffering or exile, that is kindness from God because he loves us. His kindness is born of a perfect love, a fully complete understanding of us and the way things need to work, the way that most glorifies God. He is, per, he is glorified by our perseverance through his mighty hand in our lives. The things that we feel like we can't make it through, and at the end of it, we're like, wow, we did it. The point there is to be able to say, thank you, Lord, for helping me persevere. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity, the ability to overcome the opportunity, and the capacity to understand that this is of, by, and for your glory. Incredible. When we look at life in that way, 
we start to see even some pretty lousy scenarios as kindness from God because he loves us. A way to draw closer to him, draw closer to one another. Find joy and peace on this earth, a peace that transcends understanding. That's kindness that's loving. And return to him whose sacrifice is perfect. If there's a way to end this little bit, uh, it's certainly the sacrifice. If you've ever watched as someone you love makes bad choices, you know a bit how God feels. I kind of touched on that earlier, but... You know, when there's somebody that you really care about and you want what's best for them and you pray for them and you sleep over them and you're checking in on them and you're watching and you're trying to instruct and care for and you're spending time and then you see bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. You're watching it derail their life. You're watching it impact their loved ones. You're watching people give up on them. Right? You don't want to, but you're watching other people give up. Other people throwing the towel. They never learn. I'm done. I've tried and tried and tried. I'm over it. Now you know how God feels. A little bit about how God feels. Because he watches a creation that he set in perfect motion. Knew all this would happen. Did it. And is, is watching in real time as, an, as his transcendent sovereign knowledge of everything occurs. Watching this unfold. Knowing that he's telling us things in time. Hey, get this straight. Yeah, oh, absolutely, God, you bet we will. Then immediately not do it. But we'll do better this time, God, I swear, than do it again, and again, and again, and again. Yet, he still sacrificed everything on the cross. Despite what to me would be inimitable frustration with the people that I'm supposed to be drawing close, the remnant, I would just at some point have been like, I can't, I can't, I cannot do it anymore. I am so tired. God doesn't have that issue. The cross that saved us was on God's mind even at this time. Even as Zechariah is writing this, we're going through Haggai 2 today. If you read that from a, like a view of a modern perspective of how salvation works, it's exactly what's being described there. God's doing things. He's going to call the people he's going to call. He's going to get them from all over the place in his time when he's ready to do it. And he's going to do it in the means that he decided to do it. God also knows we can't do it by ourselves. He's told us we can't. He knows that we can't. The world will tell us we can't. You can do it. You can bootstrap and buck up and get it done. Clean yourself up. Knock that addiction. Reconcile with that person. Go to school. Get a job. That's good. That's close to salvation you'll ever get in a world like this. It's not true. With God... It, it opens doors. It changes the way we view the world around us. Will we still have to get a job and pay bills? Most likely, sure. But in this case, when we think about what God did on that cross for us, I mentioned earlier about it, it pleased him to, to crush Christ. Those words haunt me. I, I know it glorifies God, so good. But Christ died for me, my sin. It pleases God to, like, if only I'd never sinned, right? That kind of heartbreak should lead us to a place where we cry out and say, thank you, God. Thank you for everything. Thank you for all the good and the bad times. Thank you for what has brought me to this place today where I can stand up in front of people and say, God is good all the time. And I mean all the time. Even when my, my ancestors have screwed it up and God has been, been forced to punish them. In this, I see now how beneficial that was for me. I said earlier in the sermon that we're here today because of the grace of God. That's true. 
It may seem like this is some divorced ancient history that we're barely connected to. No, these people kept on reproducing. Fast forward a few thousand years, and here we are. This is real stuff. God was faithful then, and he's faithful now. He has kept a remnant going. He brought Christ into the picture. Christ was, was killed on the cross and then came back to life, overcame death. Now we have a full picture of what the Messiah looks like and what salvation looks like because God knows we can't do it alone. His sacrifice is perfect, and his faithfulness is unparalleled. So what about us? Beloved, return to him. Return. It's time to come home. He has not forsaken us, but it is us that have forsaken him. I've told this story before, and I love it. The, 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 the old farm couple, and he's in his truck, and they driving through town, and he's sitting in the driver's seat, and his wife's over in the passenger seat. And they pull up behind a, a newer truck with a younger couple, and the, the wife's sitting right next to the driver. And the wife says to the husband, we used to ride around like that. He turns to him and says, well, I didn't move. You know, because he's driving. And I relate to that story, and it breaks my heart, because I'm that lady. I love turning to God, like, what happened, God? We used to be so close. We used to walk hand in hand, and God's like, well, I don't change. The same God that's beckoning them home here is beckoning us home right now. He's done more in time since then to prove to us that he loves us beyond explanation. It glorified him. It pleased him to kill his son for my sin, your sin. If that doesn't break your heart, that God, the Father, the Creator, was made, drew pleasure from the destruction of his son for our behalf, it should leave our heads spinning. How can that be? It glorifies God. You know, I don't know. His commandments should be joy in our hearts, but we make them burdens. The things we see God ask, oh, so tedious, it's so taxing, it's just so much. I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that. It's not fun for me. Let's pray as a church that that stuff gets out of here. We're going to do this stuff and learn to find the joy in it as we see the results of a time that maybe isn't what we want it to be. It's not happening the way I want it to, and I want to do something different, and, and I was called to do it this way or that way or whatever else. But at the end of the day, it's God that makes the call, not us. We must be salt and light, and to do so, we must be imbued by God. Period. We are not going to ever make the impact that we want to make if God is not with us. So the time's now. Like our fathers, we won't live forever. You can bet on that. Those that we love and care about should know this is good news. Now, when I say love and care about, you're probably thinking friends and family. That's what I think. <laughs> well, let's be praying that those that we love and care about suddenly begin to take on a much bigger meaning. Let's pray that we love and care about our lost people in the community, the people that are caught up in lives of crime, the people that are struggling as they get out of prison for something they did and still won't admit to. All manner of people that are lost in a world without hope. They should know this is good news. There's good news for them. Lord, stir in us a desire to share the good news, and Lord, stir in us a desire to return to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage. Six short verses, maybe, as we you know measure it out. But the message contained therein is eternal. 
And I'm so thankful for a, a book of prophecy that will get daunting for us, sorry, but it starts with a very clear, concise summary of why we even bother. And that is because you are faithful and you beckon us home. You want what's best for us and you're going to see it through all the way to the very end. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for your loving kindness, Lord. Thank you for your sacrifice. This is your sons, I pray. Amen.